0: Okay, well, thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, we're here to discuss protecting data and AI in healthcare together with Hub Security's very own David Hochhauser. And we're also joined by a number of AI and healthcare security experts on our panel, including Christopher Friends, Caroline Crandall, Jack Lewin, Cody Baumgartner, and Ramsey Nuali. Uh, we'll start our webinar today with a brief introduction from David um, on today's discussion topics, and then our panelists will each get a chance to briefly introduce themselves. Afterwards, we'll get a bit of a deeper into a, a bit of a deeper discussion on everything related to healthcare and AI, uh, security alongside um, understanding uh, more in-depth its uh, ongoing threats and solutions. As usual, we'll leave about 30 minutes at the end of our discussion for a short Q&A. So if you have any questions throughout, feel free to drop them below in the Q&A section and we will get to them later on. Um, Now, we have a very impressive lineup of panelists tonight and I'm excited to have them each introduce themselves to you. Uh, But first we'll begin with a few words from David before we hand off the mic for introductions. So welcome David. David Hochhauser, Hub Security CRO. Welcome uh, to today's discussion.
1: Thank you, Sterni. I was just checking, by the way, the price of some of the cryptocurrencies. For those who care, Bitcoin is down a little bit and Ethereum is up. But that aside, that's for the public announcement. Now back to why we're really here. Um, I'm Dave Hochhauser and as Sterni mentioned, I'm the Chief Revenue Officer for Hub Security And it's essentially a company with with really brilliant hardware and software engineers and expertise focused on protecting sensitive information, um, especially in healthcare. So welcome to what I think will be a fascinating discussion. Um, I wanna take two minutes really to just briefly explain uh, why we're holding this session and what is the general focus of the discussion. Now there's no subject rules uh, for any of the guests here so we can veer into anything we find important, but this at least puts us in some perspective. Um, And after I speak, we'll then keep most of the session focused on our guests. So first of all, why are we holding this session? Um, One, you can see AI is really picking up speed. Um, It's rapidly moving into uh, advancing healthcare. You see it from everything from assisting in diagnosis Um, identifying treatments, monitoring complex and very sophisticated medical equipment. Um, Just a a couple of examples to put in perspective that I've come across recently. Um, One, there's actually a pilot underway um, at University of Pennsylvania with AI and it's actually assisting in reading medical imaging for brain tumors. Medical imaging I think is a perfect example for AI. Um, And they're in this case, using a very advanced technique called federated AI to actually expand the pool of information available for machine learning, um, making it more effective in an area where we could discuss a little bit further. Um, But it's been going on for a while. I mean, I've seen an AI system. Um, Literally, it was demonstrated by a physician. This is one of the places where the engineers don't demonstrate, but the physician actually does. And it was using it to determine the best course of cancer treatment um, and it reads in an enormous amount of information. For those familiar in that area, the amount of literature generated every day is phenomenal. And so what it does is it reads it in, um, it's able to constantly look at the latest trials and development and try to and assist the physicians in coming up with the best course of treatment on. So there's, there's fascinating stuff going on in this area. Um, now I'll tell you, in addition to AI, Um, There's other really rapidly emerging technologies, such as uh, IOMT or Internet of Medical Things, um, 5G, cloud, edge computing. Now, each of them by themselves has absolutely massive potential and are game changing by themselves. Now, I I find this all absolutely fascinating, um, but it also brings a host of really powerful data privacy and protection um, challenges and questions. So there was actually a 60-minute segment, I think it was a couple of months ago. um, And it's showing the benefits of doing AI on uh, genomic data and the advantages of actually pulling in data from multiple sources and all the power um, that it can, the more data that comes in, the more advances you have. The interesting thing is the entire second half of the segment was how China is going about stealing all of our genetic data. So the two sides of the coin, huge, hugely valuable. The other side is how do you go ahead and protect this whole area? And so it really surfaces a ton of questions about AI and the security technology, um, which essentially is what brings us here today for these topics. And I'll kind of categorize them into four major general topics. Um, one is a discussion around kind of collaboration and data sharing, the value, uh, the policies, the privacy and protection around that. The other one that deals with kind of data integrity, the bias and protection of that. Um, another topic we'll explore is looking into AI and machine learning as cybersecurity tools themselves. Um, and the last one, dealing with security kind of of edge and IOMT computing and healthcare as well. So we have a lot of interesting discussions. Um, we do have each of the panelists talking and then um, of course we'll answer all kinds of questions as well. So I hope you enjoy the discussion. And back to you, Sterni.
0: Great, thank you, David. And uh, we're glad that you can join us today. Um... So I'd I'd just like to take a quick few minutes before we get into the discussion to do a quick introduction round. Um, Starting with maybe Christopher, would, would you mind just giving our audience a bit of a background on yourself and what your field of expertise is?
2: Sure. I'm Chris Friends. I'm the AVP of Information Security for Mount Sinai, South Nassau. I was formerly the head of security for Interfaith Medical Center, where I was the first person to take a hospital to zero trust. Um, I'm probably best known for being an advocate for the cybersecurity role in patient safety. And I'm also the author of the uh, OWASP, um, Secure Medical Device Deployment Standard. I'm happy to be here today.
0: Great, thanks so much for joining us. And we're also joined by Carolyn Crandall.
3: Thank you, nice to be here. Uh, I'm Carolyn Crandall. I am the chief security advocate at a company called Ativo Networks. Um, I'm generally known for, again, being another cybersecurity advocate in the industry and really trying to help organizations as they look to evolve from current security practices to how do they build a more active defense or go on the offensive against uh, cyber attackers because they've gotten so sophisticated today. And I do spend a lot of time in the medical uh, industry and working with um, both the different associations and the healthcare providers on trying to build the right architectures in order to be able to do that. Great, thank you, Caroline. And thank you for joining us
0: today as well. And next we have Jack, Jack Lewin. Why don't you introduce yourself?
4: Sure. Uh, uh, I'm Jack Lewin. I'm an internist and cardiologist. Um, Most recently, um, I was CEO of the American College of Cardiology. And then up here, uh, I'm in Manhattan today talking to you from New York. Uh, I uh, ran the Cardiovascular Research Foundation. Um, And, you know, as part of those those roles and uh, some of my work with currently my own consulting firm, Lewin and Associates, I've had a lot of... uh, Exposure to cybersecurity related risks and solutions um I actually full disclosure i've worked with a company called green hill software, which is probably one of the most advanced security companies in america Um, fortunately, they protect our nuclear weaponry and a lot of aircraft i've also worked with hoyos uh, international again another very um advanced company in terms of cyber um, security protections and i'm also Uh, an advisor to WebShield, which is an interoperability um, company and system. And I think some some lessons from those will be helpful in our conversation today. So nice to be here.
0: Great. Thank you, Jack. Glad you could join us. Um, Cody, Cody Baumgartner.
5: Hi, Cody Baumgartner. I'm division chief at the uh, University of Kentucky Medical Center uh, for Pathology Informatics. So we primarily focus, or at least my role, primary focus on the clinical application of genomics, uh, digital pathology, and laboratory medicine. Uh, prior to this, I've worked in um, a lot of lot of areas of IT, including security and, and research. And then I also head up a innovation core through our Institute of Biomedical Informatics.
0: Thanks. Great, awesome. Uh, thanks for taking the time. And last but not least, we have Ramsey Noali.
6: Thank you, Sharni. So, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. My pleasure to be here today. My name is Ramzi Nawali. I am a security specialist in Montfort Hospital. For those who don't know, Hospital Montfort, it's uh, Montfort Hospital, it's uh, an Ontario francophone academic hospital. So, this hospital serves over 2 million, 2 million half people in eastern of Ontario, Canada. So in both official language, uh, what I do. So I have mainly three mandate for me. So I am dedicated to protect critical information assets against a variety of security threats. Threat. Second one, add value. And third one is helping people to, to achieve their, their goal. So thank you very much for this opportunity. And I am honored to be with you today. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you, Ramsey. That was a great introduction. Um, so, I wanted to start off our discussion. Well, we're going to cover a few topics, but I wanted to start off our discussion with the topic of collaboration and data sharing. Um, so, I, I think I wanted to ask you, Ramsey, just right off the bat, what are some of the data protection challenges that uh, we face when it comes to using AI in healthcare?
6: Yeah. Good question uh I, I will take this uh, this question from two scope to scope the, the first scope is from change management scope and maturity l- landscape so we know that the challenge for the healthcare that is the professional they when they use technology they need trust they need trust this, te- this technology they need trust a that it works and this technology can support them and help us, help him during their their uh, day-to-day activities. So, the word trust, I think, re- resume the most significant 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 barrier to adopt AI for healthcare settings. So, for example, like passion, passion. Now they didn't they didn't normally trust new software because when i ask my patients my visitor guest here in the hospital what is ai they didn't find a very simple or they didn't find person they, they that can they explain in simple term how it works also for doctors so doctors they ask me if they trust the application coding application its this application ei is most calibrated with uh, physician physician input and it's based with uh, accurate data so from 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 change and maturity landscape and I can name it its political side the trust it's the major barrier to adopt ei within the hospital the, the second one is the legislative perspective. So when I remember GDPR, for example, the general data protection regulation, it's built for transpar- transparency and accountability. So when we adopt EI, and EI, they use the pro- profiling process, collect data, analyze, give response. Uh, it's machine logic of result. So uh, it's, it's clear from legislative perspective that AI it's, AI, it's like black box for that. So the big challenge, if I resume, is the trust from side, from doctors, from patients, and I hope also legislative be accommodate to, to uh, this new technology and to facil- facilitate to integrate AI with a transparency, with explainability, and fully trusted uh, to our uh, doctors and patients and uh, healthcare organization. So I think we have faced two challenges the trust one and the, the transparency one.
0: Thank you, Ramsey. Look, Cody, I wanted to ask you what What do you think is the biggest barrier in applying AI to healthcare?
5: I was just yeah. m- I was just miming. No, I uh, a lot of it's getting at it the data. It, we've done a pretty good job for you know several, maybe three decades at taking resulting data that's in EMRs and and we can look at that and maybe we're getting some laboratory measurements and things. But a lot of this just even textual data isn't isn't discrete. It may be in the laboratory system, but by the time it gets to the medical record. It may not be, and even in academic medical centers, which have good, uh, good, good ways of sharing data, you're not getting at what where AI is currently really excelling, which is in imaging, and in, in some cases, it's in natural language processing. But a lot of it is in imaging and in genomics, really high value, high variable uh, attribute data, and, and that's the wild west, where where you're seeing places make make the news, some good, some bad, is in. Uh, what's happening is agreements with departments not institutions are taking place and maybe data sharing is occurring but maybe it, maybe it should maybe it shouldn't but getting a hold of that data that institutions are sitting on a gold mine of information and it's 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 hard to get that information say uh, pathology slides or genomic information and harness that in a way that the institution can use it, it, it even if they want to you know these these are in disparate systems which are typically, uh, I wouldn't say outside the scope of IT and security, but they're not things that people are paying attention to. You know, the actual underlying raw data assets—that that's what I'd say is the problem. Is get, getting, organizing, curating, and then matching up that data with the eventual results would be the biggest issue that I run into.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Cody, I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you, Christopher. Um, do you think the application of machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies um, will be limited? to an individual organization, or is there value in sharing security information in order to make these systems um, even better for the entire healthcare ecosystem?
2: Sure. I'll answer the question uh, generically first, and then particularly to security. On the more generic healthcare side, I think as uh, Cody just mentioned, there's a lot of challenges towards sharing and integrating data, even between um, systems within the same organization, let alone between organizations. With that being said, I do think there is a lot of value in sharing data if we can work out a secure way to do it. I do think overall that um, sharing data is a good thing and it will help promote better AI models. Uh, One of the things with any type of machine learning or artificial intelligence is the quality of the model that comes out of it is largely dependent upon the quality of the data set that goes in to train it. (coughs) Sorry. So improved sharing and other stuff will definitely result in improved models as well as improved ability to validate those models. On um, More particular on the security side, I do think sharing becomes increasingly essential between organizations. If you go to dark web forums or other things, one of the things you see is that the people who like to attack healthcare organizations, they share data back and forth. So the more we can do to share data and help protect each other, the better off we're going to be. Because uh, one of the things we have to remember on the security side is that we're not really facing these threats alone. Any attack my hospital is seeing is likely being seen by other hospitals as well. So the more we can share what those attack vectors are. Other information about the attacks, the better off we're all going to be.
0: Definitely, Jack. Tell me, what do you think are the three most critical reasons why interoperability of critical health information, health data systems, and EHRs has been so slow?
4: Well, you know, I think um, the security issues uh, are get get a lot of, of uh, um, attention and focus. That you know, we we have we're just we don't have enough security to to share data. In, in some ways, but I think the really more challenging and common reasons that we're not more, uh, well, as Mickey Tripathi, the new guy that runs the Office of the National Coordinator, he, you know, conversation with him and then back to the original ONC director, David Brailer 20 some years ago. Why haven't we achieved interoperability? So it is some of it is this security issue, but the incentives aren't really there for in, mo- in many places to, to robustly share information. And the proprietary issues, are, are major barriers, and they're not spoken of as much. But if you put all that together, um, you know the trust and the transparency are important elements. But I think it gets down to we still have a lot of proprietary barriers, and the incentives haven't been significant enough. And you know the federal government has been a little bit slow in using its leverage to say if you're going to participate in Medicare and Medicaid and other big programs, you're going to be able to sh- you're going to share data, and that's where we're going to do this. We'll make it secure, and we'll do it together but uh, we're not quite there yet. We will be.
0: Hopefully. Um, question for you, David. Well, I know confidential computing um, is a means of safely sharing data. Maybe you can expand on this a bit and explain what confidential computing is um, and how it can help uh, share and protect the privacy of healthcare data.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, yes, yeah, so diving a little bit more into a couple of things on how what we could do. Uh, from a protection. And I know there are multiple aspects to this. Um, So one, just to explain confidential uh, computing, because it is a term starting to come up very frequently on how to enable people to share more data safely. Um, So think of it, there are three pillars of data security. Um, One is you're protecting data at rest. It's sitting there encrypted, you're protecting it. The other one is you're protecting it while it's moving or or in, in transit. The third one, which is really the toughest challenge, is how do you protect it while it's, while it's being used? Um, so the first two are pretty are pretty standard. The last one, protecting it and in the, in the application itself, the AI algorithms themselves, um, is tough because in essence, you need the data and the applications needed clear and open in order to compute very effectively and to do it. So what's happening is there are several approaches now in in confidential computing network. It's essentially a new security approach that permits the actual data and the application and the AI to be protected even while it's running. So you can protect it while it's coming in, while it's going out. Now you can actually protect everything. And the only thing that the only one that can see it is actually the code runs completely protected from anybody ever looking at it. The easiest way is to give you an example what it does. So one really interesting thing deals with collaborative machine learning. And so if you have um, five hospitals that wanna actually share medical imaging information, the problem is the, the protection, the confidentiality and the privacy of that information. So confidential computing would allow you actually to have these five different hospitals share the information and run an algorithm but none of the hospitals could actually ever see or access the other person's app information. They can't even see or touch the algorithms. Uh, even so, so no one, everybody could put it in. The algorithm can actually use all the data, but no one can see it. And not even the people running it can actually get at any of that information, even the people running it, yet they could all benefit from sharing that insight that comes out of it. And so it is one technical area that's really starting to pick up steam in order to be able to uh, keep everything protected while at the same time um, being able to protect, uh, being able to uh, protect the privacy of everything that's going
0: on. I think that's a good segue into our next topic, which is edge and IOMT computing. Um, And I wanted to to ask Cody, where can edge computing technologies be used in the application of artificial intelligence in healthcare exactly?
5: I'm, I'm probably a, a good and bad person to ask because that that was the topic of my uh, dissertation. Uh, so edge computing, and I'm um, also faculty in computer science. So we we do a lot of work in that inside of medicine and outside. You know, one of the pillars of the the reason for edge computing is the idea that the the law of the land that you're able to manipulate the data close, either closer to sources of data generation or along the way so that you can uh, either detect or mitigate security. So a couple of those things is in the data curation process. And we do this within the lab all the time, whether it's dealing with genomic data in the clinical workflows and making sure that we have data integrity as we move it around or, or in digital pathology, doing things like scrubbing the uh, um, labels and identifiers from slides after they're generated to then send them off for, say, secondary QC or something like that. So being able to, and I have uh, in presentations and I s- slides about the way we traditionally do things in hospitals, that we put things in a, in a, a big bowl and then hope that nothing ever escapes out, outside. The, the problem with that being, if you're going to try to apply AI to these things, either building models or, or actually using it, they, it typically doesn't exist within the the current hospital system. So edge edge is one way where you can both acquire data and apply policy and even apply models uh, out towards the area where data is data is either being generated or where you want to uh, uh, collect or route it. Yeah.
0: Great. Thanks, Cody. Um, Jack, um, you've spoken often in the past about your concerns regarding medical devices and particularly implantable medical devices um, being hacked. So uh, would you mind to just elaborate uh, more on this and um, explain a bit more about where your concerns stem from and what
4: do you think- Yeah, in my role as um, CEO of the American College of Cardiology, um, and again, in the Cardiovascular Research Foundation, you know, it's amazing what we're able to do technologically, uh, you know in terms of how much progress we've made, clinical progress, it's, it's fantastic stuff. Um, um, but uh, in the cyber zone, we're, not, we're really not where we need to be. So you know I've gone to some of you probably have, have had the experience that I've had where we, uh, you go to a, a cybersecurity related meeting and uh, there's a contest as see who can hack into all the most commonly used implantable medical devices in the United States. And before the end of the conference, everything's been hacked, and people get little prizes and so forth. I've, you know, I, I've been in, in meetings in Europe and Scandinavia and Germany and other places where all the American devices, the common, you know, the, the top brands are being hacked. Um, and here's the thing: I, you know, the um, the guy who was the CEO of this company, Green Hill Software, who's done, I think, more spectacular things in terms of national security solutions, called me up one time in that role and said what are we going to do about medical devices? Because medical devices like defibrillators, um, advanced pacing devices, insulin infusion pumps, and so forth, they're connected to the internet of things. So we can, we can, uh, you know, provide a kind of guided uh, therapeutics. And this is really important in heart failure. Um, uh, we're doing more and more, uh, you know, a connection to the internet of medical things to monitor people and to uh, prevent crises. But the problem is, um, these devices are easily hackable, and you could conceivably, uh, since they're all so many of the devices, they're they're all with the same kind of security protection. You could hack into all the people on a particular pacemaker, or everybody on a particular infusion punk in the world, if uh, through through uh, Wi-Fi or Bluetooth connections, um, if you hacked in. So, I have been a, an advocate for for getting the industry to move to improve this, and for some reason. Um, the leaders of the device world don't really think it's that important that they're really targets. Uh, and I'm, you know, I, there's a good reason why vice president uh, Cheney uh, disconnected his defibrillator from the internet. Uh, it was a very, very smart thing for him to do. So anyway, I just want to point this out. This is true also with, with, uh, uh, guidance devices in, in, uh, in cars today. And, and uh, it's for, for many other sectors of the economy, but we just have to do better in terms of uh, some of the common things in healthcare, um, And, you know, I think that uh, the solar winds problem that just occurred, um, you know, and, and we're still just sort of demystifying that. But, you know, one of the simplest elements there in terms of that problem is, uh, you know, we really don't be, we shouldn't be using passwords um, today as, as a means of providing access, security access, because there are, there are better biometric approaches that are much much more secure um, than, say, a password system, um, and and that's just kind of a simple step, but <clears throat> but for devices and Internet of Things, hospitals know that many times the breaches that are commonplace in hospitals ha- actually occur because somebody enters through one of the devices um, and gets into the systems that way. So that's an important area that's still unmet after ten years of of uh, expressed concerns. It
0: definitely, as a A very vulnerable endpoint, um, it becomes very easily exploited. Um, Carolyn, I wanted to ask you, um, thank you for that Jack. Um, Carolyn, so in a time where software and devices can no longer be inherently trusted, what security uh, innovations should healthcare providers be investing in now?
3: Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question and I, a lot of the things that Jack was just talking about resonate a lot and you look at, you know, the SolarWinds example, Microsoft, you know, SAP CodeDev that just came out, there's so many things that are going on today that just show that networks are inherently insecure and um we're probably not doing enough to prevent the initial compromise but we're definitely not doing enough to be able to detect that activity once it's inside the networks. And the fact that they can go undetected for so long is another huge red flag to us. Because if we can't keep the the intrusions out, we need to be able to detect them quickly and have better visibility, right? If If one of these medical devices has a vulnerability, what are the attack paths to it? And if we can't change the inherent operations of the device itself, because if the manufacturers aren't going to do it, you know, you can't really change it in the field because it may void the the warranty or change the performance of the device. And so, you know, some of the things that I do like is the FDA's new medical device development tools and the scoring model that they've put under that. I think that will help. So nobody wants to have a black eye as far as the scoring. You don't want to be the lowest on the list. And maybe that will be some motivation to um, get people to to approve. I think there needs to be more bio, uh, biomarker testing um, to check and see how these things. Um, I think we need to look at the, you know, just all the things that can happen around um, this. Um, and then let me go back to some of the the fundamentals. So, you know, inventorying assets. We know this has been an age long issue. It's not getting simpler. It's getting more um, difficult. But we need to keep investing in the visibility because if we understand the access and the attack paths, we can definitely help ourselves. Even if we can't understand where all those devices are at any given time. Um, And then, you know, do the basic things, disable the vulnerable features, enforce the network policies, tighten your network segmentation up, um, you know, and other changes in, you know, in the device environment you may be able to to modify. Um, And then the last area I'll also talk about is is two things, one around um, lateral movement and privilege escalation. It goes back to being able to detect that attacker activity inside of the network and whether it's your main network and a lot of um, devices are even connected uh, you know and managed through active directory that's the the treasure trove of information and definitely a not enough is being done in that area to make sure that an hacker can't come in and change the policies or change the operations or give themselves um, ownership inside of some of the group policies that are there so um, I again encourage people to look not only at the devices but the other elements that can have an impact on them. Mm-hmm. Well said, does, does anyone want to, to add
2: anything to, to that? Sure, I'll, I'll add a little in. Um, I'm the author of the OASPA Secure Medical Device Deployment Standard. And one of the things I'm very big on is network segmentation. That's one of the ones that I can't stress enough. Limiting that medical device so only what needs to talk to it can and nothing else. Uh, that's one of the ways to go. Because if you look at hospitals and all the ransomware attacks, one of the large contributing factors to those ransomware attacks is flat networks. Within a lot of hospitals, it's unfortunately not uncommon to have every device able to talk to every other device. And that creates a problem because when something penetrates your perimeter and something always will eventually, um, that means that one compromised PC now turns into a compromised network. And that's one of the things the hospitals really need to begin to uh, lock down. Um, the second issue I'd raise at medical devices is one of the big issues is one around availability. We have to remember that um, a lot of the medical devices that we run run the same Windows or Linux operating systems that a lot of the PCs and other systems we have in our environment do. So if we have a threat that can attack a Windows desktop, it's also likely to impact a lot of the medical devices within the organization too. And the reality is, is that ransomware does not just take out patient data; it can encrypt medical devices and other stuff as well. And that's where the, a lot of the real patient safety risks come in. You make a lot of those devices that are critical to care unavailable, and, and that's where the huge patient safety risk comes in. So, you know, my advice would be to strongly um, for hospitals to begin to look at network segmentation. A lot of other technologies like DNS sync things like that can be great as well for medical devices. Because one of the other issues is, is you typically can't install endpoint security on a medical device like you can a desktop PC, but looking at the network traffic coming out of that device is a great way to identify if a device is infected or not. Um, so begin to look at controls like that, that organizations can uh, put in place. Thanks, Chris.
0: Um, is it okay if I call you Chris? That's- yes. Christopher. Yeah. Um, and you, did anyone else want to, I think this is a really interesting topic, so if anyone else wants to jump in, feel free.
5: I, I would agree. I've I worked in, in networking for many years beforehand, and, and I don't know why a lot of people are, are hesitant to split up the networks like that. I think for 20 years ago, it made sense to, to t- try to pop everything behind individual firewalls, but even from a performance standpoint, it doesn't really make any sense to do that anymore. So along with the network infrastructure, the directory infrastructure as well. I mean, if you have your critical assets on the same uh, directory that your individual user's on, that, I mean, that that is a risk that's unnecessary and and things are federated in a way now where it's, it's not, it doesn't really cost you anymore other than just in design and time to, to break these things up and really provide kind of layers of protection. So I think that's a really the right thing to do.
0: Um, David. So as, as we've discussed uh, already, many edge computing locations are by definition not secure. And, um, and in addition, they don't have the benefit of being in a secure data center. So in your opinion, how can organizations protect their data and AI applications in such environments?
1: Okay. Um, I mean, great question. A little difficult for me to answer this without kind of plugging a little bit what HUB does. Um, because some of that I think is extremely relevant. I think one point is the, a lot of these are dealing with uh, local uh, access, local systems that are coming in. It's what that edge device is actually connecting to in the first place. And essentially I'll give you an idea what we've done is essentially built a secure data center in a box. So that can be put on the edge. So if you have a system that's sitting in in the hospital, it may not be in a secure data center, but how do you isolate that and how do you protect that application that may be running and collecting information from five of these different devices and monitoring them, whatever, there's multiple kinds of applications they're doing. Um, And I'll just, as an example for at least what Hub is doing in this space, we've taken, What's probably the most secure kinds of device are these things called hardware security modules that are used by financial institutions and a lot of places to really secure the keys and in some cases a little bit more of what you're doing to access um, some some of uh, some of the devices. We've merged that kind of reinvented it and built it out to actually put secure computing platform in there as well. So you have an extremely secure edge computing platform that has all of the crypto information, all of the security, we protect the network. We actually have a a patented hardware um, and firmware firewall protecting every message going in, every message coming out of the device at the same time. Um, And we also have highly, very powerful CPUs and GPUs that can run the applications in the AI um, right there that might be controlling and monitoring the devices, for example. Um, the other key piece, it's actually in a hardware, in a FIPS4 compliant box, so it's tamper resistant. So that's what we say it's kind of like a data center um, in a box where literally if somebody, it's anything inside of here we consider not hackable, there's nothing that's 100%, but extreme protection, even if the person tries to pick up and walk away, away with it. So from our perspective, um, that's in effect at least how you have to seriously secure any of the edge computing that's going on that's intercepting with these devices um, and control from theirs. I think it's gonna be increasingly critical to have everything that intercepts to be an extremely secure computing environment that's working with it so that you can't break in from all these different angles as well. Great, with
0: that, I want to move on to our next topic, which is data. I wanna discuss a bit about integrity bias and protection. Mm -hmm. And starting with you, Cody, um, what new technologies and techniques uh, stand to change the landscape of artificial intelligence in medicine?
5: I think we're just now starting to deal with some of the integrity problems. And some of that has to do with the guidance that has been released by the the FDA to say, okay, if you're going to build your own models, or if you're going to go for approval, this is what it it should look like. So in in a lot of ways, we talk about data exchange as being de-identified, but in the same token, if you're actually going to build these things for clinical use, you actually would need to know where the data came from. So there's a bit of a uh, an issue there. So, what I think that is 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 very much needed, and you don't see, I don't see any much efforts in this area. Would be to unify the raw data assets, to unify to be be able to interrogate the PAC systems and interrogate the digital pathology and and all of these other non-textual things that go into EMRs, uh, and then be able to keep track of that data from you know time of generation all the way through the point to where it's actually used by the model. Now the the, thing, the other part of that question, I would say, is, is from a benefit from AI, and now this isn't you know, using a, an fda proof model, but this into the data sharing is that even in imaging, you're going to have different, in pathology, you're going to have different stainings, you're going to have different devices. The, the data that somebody else may give me may actually make my uh, model worse. So in that case, what you, you need to actually do is to keep track of the assets as far as the type of data. There's a new te- new techniques that are being applied to medicine called <clears throat> uh, generative networks. Uh, so general adversarial networks are, are being used to where I can say, take uh, data from Ramsey's uh, hospital and and then take data from my hospital. And then I can apply the, the way that my staining looks, the way that my device is, the way my data looks to his data to then. Uh, hopefully make better use of that internally. So I think keeping track of the assets from cradle to grave, keeping track of the actual, uh, the attributes of the data, are, are things that we're gonna have to start doing uh, if we're gonna be serious about actually applying this clinically.
0: Of course, and as you said, um, with any type of machine learning or AI, the training data that's used to create the model is um, is of critical importance and is what needs to be protected. And Christopher, I wanted to ask you what protections, if any, are um, organizations using to ensure the integrity of the training data in their AI models,
2: machine learning models? Sure. I think this is a challenge for healthcare beyond just um, data used for training. Because uh, as mentioned, a lot of the data is data that already resides in our EHR system, data that resides in our PAC system. So it's really a question about what are th- hospitals doing to actually secure the data they have. And um, for a lot of hospitals, that's actually a challenge. If we look at the 2017 Health and Human Services Cyber Se- Security Task Force report, uh, they had several major security findings uh, for what's commonly wrong in hospitals. Uh, one is most hospitals have a lack of security talent. In most hospitals, there's not a, even a full-time security person that actually works for the organization. Um, obviously, you know, for a lot of bigger hospitals, that's not the case, and they have security teams. But if you take an average of hospitals, there is a lack of security talent within most hospitals. Uh, you combine that with an environment that has a lot of legacy devices. Um, a lot of legacy devices, which can't be patched anymore, have a ton of vulnerabilities and makes those devices easy to compromise, which further kind of compounds the challenge. Um, you add to that the fact that um, in a lot of cases, there's been a lot of premature overconnectivity, as the push for meaningful use and other guidelines. It, it pushed a lot of systems and devices online quickly, and when you do that with a lot of legacy devices without really giving much thought to how they're going to be secured, it creates a problem. And I think you've seen a lot of that problem in a lot of the ransomware attacks that uh, healthcare you know, has uh, seen over the recent years. Um, I think another common issue you see in a lot of healthcare organizations is they're heavily focused on things like HIPAA compliance, but there's often a big difference between compliance and security. In a lot of cases, you can check the box and be compliance, but still be pretty insecure. I think we see that in a lot of cases as well in hospitals. I kind of view compliance like trying for a D grade in the classroom. Yeah, you may check all the boxes to pass, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing a good job. And I think too many hospitals are concerned with just compliance and not actual security. So I think those are all you know, big issues that hospitals need to address. And I think last year has actually been particularly challenging because with the onset of COVID, you had a lot of hospitals now forced to roll out telehealth, roll out um, remote access, all kinds of other technologies. And oftentimes they were rushed out and many hospitals didn't give a thought to security. So it's created a real challenging environment for hospitals in recent years to keep up with security. I do think that is starting to change, I think hospitals are becoming more and more security conscious. You are starting to see upticks in investment within cybersecurity, within healthcare, but most organizations do unfortunately still have a a long way to go.
0: Definitely, and I think 2020 uh, saw the biggest spike that we've seen in ransomware attacks uh, on um, healthcare organizations, and um, I think it's been a wake-up call for many. my next question, I, I wanted to throw it back to you, Cody, for a minute, um, for generative models that can create synthetic data uh, from real data, does the model or the resulting synthetic data need to be protected uh, as well?
5: It probably depends on what it is. If it's somebody's face, maybe. If it's uh, some de-identified you know, cancer model, prob- probably not. I mean, what, what you're looking for in, in like a, an uh, encoder, encoder models sh- can take and do transformations on existing real data. What you're hoping for in generative models is to actually create synthetic data. So somebody may argue with me, but I think in general, what you're looking for in advanced um, synthetic models is is that you can actually take, uh, you're you're taking what looks like real information or like the picture of Tom uh, Tom Cruise and then applying it to somebody somebody else. Uh, and and I think in this case, this is a really good area to where the federated the the federation between areas for to get those high numbers, the, the 10,000 and 40,000, to get in the high 9.99% you know, on, on uh, classifications, you need lots and lots of data. If we're able to create general models, which then can be transformed into something that would be more like my staining or, or my location that I could actually use to do testing on my side, then I think that would be useful. But I mean, my, my opinion though, is if you're generating synthetic data for certain types of information that I, I wouldn't Think that I would have to necessarily be protected, but maybe it does. Yeah.
0: Um, Carolyn, um, many organizations are now shifting to an identity first security posture in order to protect sensitive information. Um, I was wondering, how do you think this will affect healthcare providers?
3: Yeah, yeah, no, it's an interesting dynamic. And a lot of it was, you know, pushed forward with the remote workers. And instead of having everybody behind, you know, their t- typical protection barriers that, you know, people had to think differently, right, you know, at all these different devices, all these different home networks, all of these different things that there was less control over. So what it's done is it's it's driven a different conversations among the security professionals and the CISOs that instead of thinking of things at the land edge, think about identities. and And when I say identities. It is the people's credentials, it's their privileges, it's their, their access to information. And if you try to do it, although I do formally believe in network segmentation, but if you try to do this around providing not only the right authorization and authentication, but also putting up the right types of conditional access so that if that person not only doesn't have the right credential, the right privileges, um, using the right tools that maybe they can't see that database of, or, of information or document, or maybe they can't get access to that application. And so, you know, there's a bunch of technology that's been out, um, it's still developing, it's probably been a little over complex for most uh, healthcare organizations to adopt unless they're big and have, have the right security teams. But I think there's a lot of technology that's coming forward right now that you can now start to think about it. As identity protection for anyone, anywhere, anytime. And now also how you cross it from those endpoints into the directory services and environment and also into the cloud as um, people move and adopt there today. So I think it's something that should be a priority for uh, organizations and kind of that crawl, walk, run is, you know, how are my credentials, right? And do those credentials or what's happening on the endpoint, let me get into those directory services and change things. And how do I at least shut those things down? And then look at ways to get more sophisticated upon entitlement and conditional access. and, And as people would also maybe correlate this to a bit of the zero trust model, and what can be done there, Um, you know, zero trust or least privilege are definitely things that should be on every CISO's mind, Um, you know, and it's a process, right, it's kind of like the journey versus a destination, I don't just say one day I'm going to have zero trust, it's how do you build a program that gets you as close to that as you can, given your operating environment, and I firmly believe you've got to be thinking about it from an identity first posture to really make that achievable.
0: Definitely, and you touched on zero trust, which uh, is something that I hope that we can we can discuss a bit more um, further on. But I wanted to ask uh, Jack because this has come up already, and um, and I can I can hear the frustration in your voice when you talk about it. Uh, HIPAA is um, so it regulatory compliance? Um, is it really as big of a barrier to protecting health data uh, and AI as it's typically uh, presented to be? Oh, I think you're
4: muted. Sorry about that. Yeah, HIPAA gets a lot of play, and it, people, you know, the, the huge concerns about it, and so forth, and it, it's become more of a barrier than it needs to be. Um, I think we do have to protect privacy, and it's, it, you know, the, the laws are written for good reasons, um, but um, we're, we don't need HIPAA as a as a huge barrier to um, um, being able to share data and. To move forward with uh, AI and so forth, I've been working with. Um, interestingly enough, uh, uh, I mentioned earlier uh, a company called Hoyos Integrity, uh, who partnered up um, with Green Hill Software, the, the folks out in Santa Barbara that have that, that have been probably the most sophisticated defense um, cybersecurity people um, to build a phone, um, which is going is now on the market. But it's being it's a, it's a phone that is. Um, and I'm saying this securely, it's unhackable. It could be hacked, uh, if your body and brain were, uh, were part of the hack process, but otherwise the phone is, is, it's going to be insured for millions of dollars to protect, you know, to, to guarantee that they're, they're, they're serious. Uh, they've done a contest global contest for the $10 million prize to see if the phone can be hacked and it hasn't been hacked. Um, the phone is going to be on the market mainly for people like the state department and, um, the the secret service and, and uh, the DOD and uh, and those kinds of users at the moment, um, a five G version of it though, will become available, uh, this fall. Um, it's not really a cost barrier, um, to, to have this kind of level of security. Um, built into the phone and, and really the, the two reasons that why it's so secure is because all the parts were thoroughly um completely vetted by green hills before they were assembled then the phone assembly done by motorola is completely secure like a you know like uh like a, s- a secure laboratory um and all of the software 100 percent of the software has been evaluated and mostly rewritten um, uh, by by the parties involved to, to get to this place um, but the beauty of it is that for healthcare providers um, and for for hospitals, you could use this phone and call literally call anybody and, and discuss any kind of confidential information with the absolute assurance that it will not be hacked. And that's going to be for voice, for text, for email, and for data exchange uh, in these devices. So look for the Hoyos uh, Integrity phone on the market sometime soon. I have no uh, invested interest in it, but I've just been an advisor to the process. Uh, but here's an example of how we could, we could sort of get around HIPAA now that the patient isn't gonna have not necessarily have this kind of security. So at their end, uh, the patient could be releasing sensitive data, but by by definition, when the patient releases data that's theirs, it's not a HIPAA violation. So there there's some progress in this regard, but I think the other side of it is that um, you know, we we need to be careful that we're not using HIPAA as a barrier to to pro- clinical progress we need to make um, that will really benefit patients. So, you know, it is a frustration. the, the law is there for a reason, but I think there are, there's there's going to be progress around um, sharing data securely without HIPAA violations in the near future.
0: All right, Thanks, Jack. Um, Christopher. Uh, as computer-aided diagnosis systems um, and other forms of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning um, become more mainstream in healthcare, uh, what are some of the new um, the new concerns that these kinds of systems introduce, the new kind of security security and cybersecurity concerns, I'm sorry, that these systems introduce? I
2: mean, we, already, we already covered a bit of it, but um, if you want to expand. Sure, I think there will definitely be some new security challenges introduced by that. Um, you know, For example, poisoning of a data set used to train. If you poison the training data, you might get an incorrect outcome with the model. Um, so there are a variety of new issues that will come about. Um, they can often be addressed by a lot of the standard things we do today to protect data sets, but it does introduce some interesting new risks. Uh, some other things I could think of in that regard is, um, you know, for example, on the security side, there was the antivirus of silence a few years back, which uses machine learning to detect malware threats. And um, by making malicious code that represented common executables, they were, people were able to sneak that by the machine learning model. So I do see the potential for um, you know a lot of attacks that kind of mirror that, too, where you try to make something look similar to something else in order to get it to you know, bypass the system. Um, I think there's all probably going to be whole classes of flaws that deal with exploiting the, the logic behind a lot of the machine learning um so i do expect to see you know new types of attacks come up as a result of a lot of the ai as it becomes more and more prevalent i don't think it's something that um you know we've seen yet in healthcare to my knowledge but i do think it does create some additional attack vectors, you know going forward and uh, it will be interesting to see what additional classes of attacks come out of the um, growing prevalence of these models
0: cody you look like you want to jump in on that you're stroking your your beard very I was
5: think, still thinking about what you know Jack was saying about HIPAA because it's a it's a trigger for me and I, I work I was in um, medical research in, in around the 2000s and at that time IT and healthcare and that was the first pass of HIPAA and um, at that point IT organizations were there for and then hospitals were there for service and when I came back in 2017 they were there for compliance and 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 data and it was no longer that way. And I think people forget about the other part of HIPAA is the portability. It's supposed to make it to where we can actually access the data and not as a barrier. So as we're applying AI, I think we're, you're going to have to shift gears. IT organizations, security organizations are going to have to think about not how do I protect the data as far as you know keeping it all all hidden. It's it's how do we go about actually making sure the right people have access to what they need, not just within their little group, but but broader. And it goes back to what, what David was saying as far as any of the protected computing. A lot of people probably, I would say most hospitals, if you said we have a perfect model for X, Y, Z, and we're going to give it to you, they would have a really hard time making use of it. You know, the, the injecting AI into clinical workflows, even if you already have the trained model, is, is not an easy thing because hospital systems aren't set up to do it. So if you have an academic medical center where you both you know, have a reason to do to, to do this information and you have the data the, the hospitals don't fund the typically don't fund the exploratory work to do the model training, okay? The research side is not going to fund something for the hospital. So you have this gap where you can't use uh, public clusters, you can't use national labs to do the type of modeling that you need to do. And now the models are getting so huge, it's not like you can do it under your desk. Uh, and then even running inference, if they gave you the model would be something that would be difficult. So there's a real problem in bridging that gap between what hospitals typically do and how they protect data, and actually using AI, even if we had it available to us. So uh, that that was mostly my frustration with HIPAA and how things are, are kind of. Uh, uh, I, I think we're taking a kind of brutish approach to dealing with security by just saying, "Well, no, you don't have access to it anymore." And at least that that's been my uh, that's been my experience. You know, fast-forwarding 15 years from yes, we'll give you whatever you want, which was probably more lenient, to no, you explain to me why within your own department, you know, you want certain, uh, c- certain data sets. Ho- hopefully the uh, protected computing would help that.
1: <laughs> and and the stuff I've seen though, as well go at least a few, and you may have seen more, is some of the ones are actually, you're right, they're complex. They're, there's a, a large vendor, I've seen it either with Intel running it or IBM and the university and five hospitals And so there's a major player coordinating it, and they become big, complex effort. It's not a matter of, hey, let me just drop it in. And hopefully that kind of research can get done more, and maybe it's just a matter of dropping in the inference engines, then the machine learning will be a little bit easier to do. I think it's going to be hard for the individual hospitals. But so far, the ones I've seen are major collaborative efforts.
5: And that's to generate... Typically to generate the data set and to publish the paper. Yeah. Find places that are making active use in it in during the in the clinical pipeline, and it'll be much less. Um, and, you know, so that, that's the the gap that needs to be bridged in, yeah. in the I mean, of course there's security and data quality issues that 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 will prevent some of that from happening quickly, but that that's the thing that we're focused on is how would we go about making AI look like a laboratory-derived test, something that we could validate internally, we don't have to wait for a, you know, an FDA-approved model, that's something that we could do. But that's, that's a harder thing than, than one would think.
0: Great, thanks, Cody. Um, and with that, we'll segue to our last topic, which is artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and uh, ways that it can be used to, to bolster cybersecurity. Um, and I want to start with you, Carolyn. Um, we've seen ransomware attacks on healthcare providers take a sharp rise in 2020. And in 2021, the trend continues. Um, how are security teams leveraging AI to, to combat these attacks? Is, are, are there ways um, that we can learn from um, that are already uh, being used to protect these uh, our vulnerable healthcare systems?
3: yeah yeah no it's a great it's a great question, and a lot of companies do use AI inside of their technology, and there's a lot of lot of focus on it. um but it's it's an imperfect model because a lot of times what you're doing is is you're looking at you know logs and information to try to look up signatures or pattern match things or look for you know other heuristic information that will tell you that something bad is happening. But a lot of times what happens is by the time you get all that information together and correlate it, you know, it's the car has already crashed into the wall, right? And it, and, it, and then it takes a lot of time to do the intelligence. And so I do think there's a lot of benefit in using AI to try to be predictive. And I do think it's useful if we can apply it to faster correlation, or some people may call that the machine learning piece of it, to faster correlate the data, get the threat intelligence. And I guess one piece I would put on that, if anybody is following the latest Mandiant report, you look at the dwell time, the time it takes to detect an attacker, was cut in half. Right. And you may go, hooray, security teams have gotten better. Or you may go, oh my gosh, my my time now to detect these has gotten really short. So now my time to respond has to get even faster. Right. You got to find them faster, you got to respond faster. And so, um, I do think it should be uh, should be a focus of every organization to take a look at how they incorporate it, but it's also a barrier for a lot of these smaller organizations because they don't have the teams, the resources, the skill set to be able to go through all of this information, weed out the false positives, and get to the data that they they need. And again, time is of the essence now, and so you know. I think, and I know I kind of harp a little bit about on the the identity and looking at conditional access to things, but I do think if you think about attackers um, who are using AI themselves, right? So instead of trying to find every signature and, and behavioral piece of it to say, okay, what are the techniques? And go on the offensive to say, if you even look at ransomware and the commonality of the playbooks, there are certain things and you can use the MITRE ATT&CK framework, which does an excellent job of outlining that or a kill chain model to see what are the things that all these different types of ransomware are doing and say, if you can do a technique based detection to say, let me anticipate what they're going to do to steal credentials to look for ports and services to exploit, um, look for the other activities, you're going to get more accurate detections than necessarily trying to call through everything that AI might think is an activity. And so I guess my suggestion is AI should be a part of it, but also use, you know, things like vulnerability assessment information, get ahead of it, look at the attack paths that are going to come off of an endpoint and make sure that you've got the right detection measures in place that are more based upon technique versus, having to rely on AI as a detection method, which is good, but still generates a lot of false positives the way that it's it's being used today and, and misses things.
0: Correct, that's correct, definitely. Thank you, Carolyn. And Ramsey, I wanted to ask you as well, how do you see healthcare organizations uh, using AI to bolster their cybersecurity?
6: Yes, thank you, it's a good question. I continue to proceed. What, with Carolina said, effectively we are now, and from 2020 and now 2021, cyber security is is a war. So we are in the war against ransomware, malware, and a lot, a lot of huge of number of attack uh, to healthcare organizations. So we know that from two, three years now, the growth of number of of attacks, threats kind of severity and complexity also. So I think that the uh, artificial intelligence can help uh, healthcare organization to detect vulnerabilities and uh, respond to data breach faster and uh, and with great precision. Uh, From my experience, I know that healthcare organization and also mostly organization uh, and uh, I have a number that 63% of organization, they didn't have enough staff to monitor threats uh, 24-7. So, and also, and the data, healthcare data, it's more and more valuable uh, than uh, standard information like uh, social security or uh, credit, credit card number. So I think EI can boost and simplify security. So I select two, two major factors where I can help us. Uh, the first one is to protect healthcare uh, data. So we know now since last years that uh, vendors and in the market, we, we, we find a solution, AI solution within uh, network equipment like uh, like cisco systems and uh, ibm watson solution so uh, i think it's it's it, it, this kind of of change in the market we find ei solution within within network and uh, it solution is help us to enable hospital to to prog- protect against uh, zero day uh, threats so we can target we can target uh, firstly, the all undiscoverable weakness. So the, the first one is uh, AI can help us to protect healthcare uh, data. The second one is I think that AI has a very good progressive to progress to predict unusual behavior. So uh, I think I think this technology this technology is uh, it's m- more development devel- with ei solution so can help uh, hospital to reinforce existing security structure and protocol in the other hand unfortunately uh, I, I i i want to add that ei uh, the bad guys and uh, and uh, hackers know now the strong of uh, of ei so <clears throat> Cyber, cyber criminal now is going to the growth of this defense done by AI mechanism. So they also use AI to, to, uh, to counter organization AI defense. So now we have another war to, to win against AI used by, uh, by cyber criminal. Just my last advice for that, uh, I advise organization when they plan to uh, to put AI enable security, uh, they they didn't left autopilot when they deploy AI. They need absolutely make their change management carefully before deploy and after the implementation of AI and make uh, a risk evaluation continuously to be sure that we can use ai in the in the good way in the good fields so EI can resolve all or specific problem facing a hospital or clinic
0: definitely, definitely. <laughs> um since we are coming up on our last half hour um i wanted to uh, move into q and a so we have about 20 minutes and you know i I will just throw a question out. Anybody can feel free to jump in and to answer. Um, um feel free to just uh, to feel to feel more more uh, open to to talk with one another. So I'll just throw out the first one that we have here from our audience, which is, what are the maturity levels of the healthcare industry um, in following, preparing, and implementing AI and protection of data? I
5: would say.
4: Um, the, one of the features infant, the, infant? Is, to, is to imagine. I mean, the, the the real risk in the beginning, of course, is with machine learning is is where where are the sources of data coming from? Can you trust them? So it's back to trust and transparency, and to a certain extent, um, as we're as we're bringing sources of data into advanced AI and in the, in the actual development of it. Um, but I think on the other side of this, we've just had this great discussion about uh, how AI can be both a deterrent against um, cyber risk uh, and a contributor. So it's a very complex matter.
5: I think just just add what, what Jack was saying and, and previously with AI, I, ho- I hope billions are invested in, in AI related security, not because I necessarily want to be uh, bothered with AI and security people saying, what are you doing? But the tools that are used are essentially the same. There's a finite number of, of media sources and the models are, are generally uh, similar. So if you can pull in time series data related to uh, the uh, you know network traffic or credential usage or any kind of access usage, that's very similar to what you would look at for potentially biomedical data look at individual patients. So I, I think if, similar to how uh, AWS was started as an afterthought, and now is a, the biggest revenue generating area. If you have hospitals that were focusing on the general application of AI, whether it be through security or for for patient models, then that would probably be a good strategy.
0: Um, all right, so next up, we have uh, another question from our audience, which is, what are the basics, um, the basic ethics, the risks and compliance needs to consider in protection of data? Um, for AI. I think we covered we covered some of this already, I know, but. Um,
1: the ethics. You know, I'll just I'll add a couple of things. I know there are actually, there's a lot of stuff ethically. Some of the things, um, just as an example that I've seen is one, you know, you need to actually give permission, right? So there are ethics. So I was talking to one of the companies that collects genomic data. They're more commercial to give information. Now they have an ent- a huge pool of genetic information, um, but not available for any kind of medical research because then they would have to start getting involved and in going back to every single one of their customers to get permission. And then if any of them ever said, hey, I don't wanna be part of that, they have to go back and find everybody they gave it to and pull back. And it's too much of a liability. Um, then there's the issue: well, if you would, You know, so do you make everybody do it or do you start financially incenting people? And then you have some some issues about, well, you can only get pools of data from people who really want the money or need the money. Um, There's a lot of challenges. There is a group, um, an alliance for AI and healthcare recently that has a working group actually now. They're actually starting to look at some of the policies and technology behind it and actually going to start lobbying for some uh, regulatory changes as well, Um, because there are a lot of complexities. And sometimes I think we swing, we always swing too far when we pass a regulation. And then we have to look at what are the things that are really good for everybody uh, when you're doing research and what are the things you're doing to protect. Um, So it it will be interesting. There's stuff in Europe as well. They're looking at a new regulation Um, to be able to protect the use of AI. The other extremes, if you look in the social scoring thing that's going on in China, um, where everything is open for the government to take about you, whether it's medical, any kind of information to create a score that's gonna be used for everything about your life. So I think it's one of those cases too, where there's a lot of ethical issues and the policies often fall behind the race of the technology where it's going. And I think there's a lot of work, so there's a ton of ethical issues. I mean, it's a long question, but um, there are a lot of other interesting things to think about along there.
0: Definitely. I mean, you said China, everyone's face dropped. Um, So I think we all understand the implications of um, and the importance of, of
1: data privacy. Well, they don't have the data sharing issue
5: there's another thing in the laboratory we deal with especially in genomics and that's what what do you do when you discover something and the person's right to not know if you can't do anything about it if there's no treatment or if it may not happen um is that when we look at at certain panels that we we exclude exclude that information from the providers because it's not part of the panel because of those those reasons so when you have certain people applying ai maybe to you know full full genomes is should the person know you know, is there a a right not to know uh, some of these things? Mm,
0: Interesting question.
5: Or
4: um, do we have to have a a kind of an ethics around disclosure? Um, You know, much as when uh, it was back in the day when people with HIV was a death sentence, um, had to be told with a one-on-one therapeutic process Rather than just getting the information, you're HIV positive. I, I think we're looking at we look at genomics and genetics in a similar way. We've got to um, develop a whole ethical construct around how we divulge that information to whom and and um, you know and and when it's cruel.
0: Thanks, Doc. And um, we have another. Um audience member who asked if we can talk a bit more about uh, zero trust architecture. Um, we only have a few minutes and uh, maybe for for this particular question is quite a large topic um but if anyone maybe wanted to um, to share something more um, about specifically about uh, zero trust when it comes to AI um, sure it won't be
2: particular you. to AI but I, I can definitely talk about zero trust. Um, Back at the previous hospital I worked at, we started our zero trust initiative in 2015. And I think one of the interesting things actually beyond the zero trust itself is why we made the decision to go zero trust. What we decided to do was actually simulate a ransomware attack. So we used what's called the ICAR test string, which for anybody unfamiliar with it, it's a harmless string of characters that many years ago, all the AV makers got together and agreed to treat as a virus. So it kind of provides an interesting way to test endpoint security. So we wrote a script that uh, took a listing of all the PCs in the organization and attempted to um, basically um, copy this ICAR test string to the various PCs in the organization to kind of simulate malware spreading through the organization. And we learned a lot of stuff by doing this, um, both in terms of what technical controls worked, what didn't work, um, as well as um, how people were going to respond you know, to the incident. So, But to kind of keep it to zero trust, um, one of the things was we learned that The network segmentation we had in place was very effective at keeping the threat contained to just the department the script was launched in because it was segmentation by department at the time the interesting thing we learned though is that clinically speaking if we were to lose our our, let's say entire radiology department or an entire clinical department it was still going to be disastrous for hospital operations so we started to think about what we could do to take network segmentation to the the next level and um, we approached it in a couple of ways we started with the data center where we used VMware's NSX to kind of micro-segment all the servers in the data center. And for the physical network, we approached it more through a NAC appliance, where we put policies in the NAC appliance to allow PCs to talk to the server subnet, but nothing else within the organization. So no two PCs in the organization could actually communicate with each other. They could only communicate with our server subnet, and that server subnet was micro-segmented with NSX in order to ensure that that particular PC could only see the servers that needed to and nothing else and kind of at a really high level that's kind of the approach we took towards um, approaching you know that zero trust mindset you know, with that being said zero trust is more of a journey um, there's always going to be things you can do to further lock things down further improve um, so advice i would have to uh, people who wanting to do zero trust is to first really figure out what's on your network do an asset inventory take the time to make that as complete as possible then once you have the asset inventory Begin to actually map out how those various assets actually talk to each other, and that's going to be the biggest challenge you find. The more completely you take out the time to map out how the various assets on your network talk to each other, the better you're going to be able to create policies, and the less likely you are going to be to break something when you um, begin to put rules in place. And once you put rules in place, you know, start simple. Do the really low-hanging fruit first. You know, segment like things like DNS or DHCP servers. Things where the network team, you know, really understands the ports and protocols, because your chance of breaking something is going to be much less because they they know those services inside and out. It gives them a chance to learn the new tools that you're introducing, and kind of um progress from there. So you know, take it slowly. It's going to be a long journey. It's not going to be something you're going to do overnight. It took us about eighteen months to two years in that range to kind of um get it to a, something that resembled a more fully zero trust network. But you know, it's a process and. Um, if you take your time. Uh, begin to do it by developing an inventory and figuring out how things talk to each other.
6: Yeah. Just
2: sorry.
3: Sorry. Go, go, go ahead. Go, go ahead, Rams. Go... Okay. Okay. So I, I was just going to add on to what Chris was saying. I think, you know, that network visibility and the piece I would add on to it, it again, is is it's not just all, all about the devices, but it is about the credentials and the privileges. And so a quick win for many people, again, if you look at these big ransomware attacks is if they could change those policies potentially and reset their access or give them the ability to um, you know, turn on and turn off things to their, you know, to their advantage that I would again stress that as part of that architecture that Chris talked about is, is don't forget your Active Directory environment, and that you get the right uh, visibility. And there's a lot of tools that are out there today that make, you know, not only the network visibility easier, but also, that attack path visibility and those vulnerabilities to, to Active Directory um, more visible. And and I would say there, without getting you know overly technical on it, it's you know there are things like you know golden ticket or silver ticket attacks that that you might go well I either resonate and understand what that is or I don't understand what that is. And if you don't understand it and you're not looking at how you protect against those type of things, you are gonna be at risk. So I just wanna make sure that, you know if you can protect everything around it, but somebody can go in the middle and change it all without you even knowing, then that is a very high vulnerability and risk that you wanna be thinking about. So just kind of adding on, I think Chris is right in the things he introduced, but I would just say these are important and can be very quick wins without maybe some of the complexity that that Chris had talked about. So, um, sorry, over to you, Ramsey.
6: <laughs> thank you, thank you, karin exactly so i continue with the quick wins definitely i continue with the christopher and caroline uh, speaking so uh, from from zero trust side so so uh, we we can we the, the 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 approach is i speak for the healthcare organization and others is to, to make make sure that we 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 proceed with Deep, deep securities, so we we, we need to diversify and to put multiple layer uh, inside, outside our perimeter to make sure that that attackers and cyber criminals, they have a lot of many, many uh, layers to uh, to to attack. So I I take example in NAC, Network Access Control. So hospitals and clinics, they can make, proceed, deploy a NAC solution. Now this technology, it's available with the new generation firewall, routers, and the core switching. So they can do this quick win. Another point also very, very important is the awareness and training of people is the, the, Is within the zero trust. Also, we didn't need trust. Everyone, everything, and every protocol. So, and the human, unfortunately, it's the the least the least component in our security posture. So, awareness and training, it's it's a must to have. To deploy within uh, with uh, centralized and enterprise solution uh, within our hospital and clinics to prevent to prevent uh, uh, phishing attack to prevent uh, uh, social engineering attack and so forth so i recommend fourthly that uh, healthcare organization deploy and plan automatic uh, simulation phishing uh, at large uh, in their organization.
0: Definitely. Thank you, Ramsey. Um, and I, I think we're going to wrap up soon. I'm just going to ask a final question that we have here from someone in our audience. Um, is there a certification available that you would recommend for individuals that are lear- looking to learn um, how to be ready to protect um, healthcare organizations specifically?
2: Okay. I think it depends on which aspect of security, Um, you know, there's lots of different security certifications. It's going to depend on the level of experience of the person, um, you know, what particular type of security you're looking to target. If somebody wants to be a web application pen tester, I'd recommend, you know, different skills than somebody who wants to work more on the compliance side of security. So I I think it's really going to, you know, depend on what particular um, interest the person has in security. Definitely.
0: All right, and with that I want to thank everyone for joining us today and thank you to our speakers, um, David Hochhauser, Christopher Friends, um, Carolyn Crandall, Jack uh, Jack Levin, Cody Baumgartner and Ramsey Noali. Uh, We hope that you're all staying safe and healthy and we look forward to hosting many more discussions like these in the future. Um, To get in touch with any of today's panelists, feel free to reach out to them directly. Um, all of today's attendees will be receiving an email uh, within the coming days with the contact information for each of our panelists, so don't be afraid to drop them a line if you have further questions on any of today's uh, topics that we discussed. And um, to stay up to date on upcoming webinars, you can follow Hub Security on LinkedIn and on Twitter, and you can also check out our weekly digest on Medium. Um, and uh, look forward to, to speaking with you guys again, hopefully uh, hopefully soon. Thank you guys for all joining us today.
1: Thanks, Thanks, Tony.
4: Thanks very much. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you very much.